Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. We're excited to be here today talking with Alex Baker. He's the new director of Fleischer Ullman Gallery, which is a gallery dedicated to art by self-taught artists and by artists influenced by the self-taught. Alex returns to Philadelphia after four years in Melbourne, Australia, where he was senior curator of contemporary art at the National Gallery of Victoria. Prior to that, he was a major asset in the Philadelphia art scene, having been a curator of wonderful outside-the-box exhibits at the ICA and PAFA, or the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. So, <laughs> Alex, welcome back. Thank and you. can you tell us why you went to Australia? I was offered a job, and I needed a life change. So um, my wife agreed to go with me, and we just thought it would be great um, just to have a new adventure. Why did you need a life change? Just because I've been in Philadelphia for 20 years, or my entire adult life, and you know, I never did the thing which students or kids should do after college, which is like tour the world. I basically graduated from college and went straight into the workforce and never explored. How was the surfing in Australia? It's very good. Yes, <laughs> I really miss it. <laughs> yeah, New Jersey's not quite the same. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> I always enjoy the hurricane swells and the winter nor'east storms, so. I will continue to enjoy those at the very least. So tell us what did lure you back here since it wasn't the surfing? Yeah, well, um, I had to leave Australia because my visa expired and uh, my contract expired. So I had, we had no choice but to leave. We had no idea where we would wind up and John Ullman called me and offered me this job and I really respect John and you know we worked together when I was at the Academy on acquisitions and I've always was inspired by, by what John has done here. So never worked in the commercial gallery sector and figured, why not? You know, it's all contemporary art and um, nothing sacred under capitalism anyway. So here I am. Well, so that's, that's one of the questions we have is how different is it going to be working as a curator? I have no idea. I don't know yet. I, I've been here for a month. So what you've been doing? I've been trying to sell a couple of artworks here and there, and I'm just getting used to the systems, you know? FileMaker Pro, ooh, um, that kind of thing. The funny thing is now here is that it's such a small staff, so I'm much more involved in, you know, across the board systems than I was at the National Gallery of Victoria, which had a staff of 300 and an incredible division of labor. We had a whole department devoted to cataloging, which took care of how labels text read in the gallery setting and this place is of course totally different. So uh, working in that big bureaucracy yeah. then, did that hamper you in any way? It did but it's always like this you guys and I think you know what I'm talking about like you may be really frustrated at a given moment in time but you look back just even a couple months later and you start to forget about the bad stuff that drove you crazy so already I'm getting those rose-colored glasses on when it comes to Melbourne. I mean, my job was really um, quite bureaucratic and just different levels of bureaucracy. And um, it, was a, it was a conservative, large institution, but I did manage to do some really good things that I'm really proud of. And in hindsight, the institution sort of agreed for me to do certain things that they probably would never have done. Like what? What are so some we did this Harold Fletcher show that was pretty, you know. I mean, it wasn't you know, it wasn't like we were burning paintings or smashing artworks, anything like that at all. So it wasn't like we were 
violating the ethos of the museum in any way whatsoever. But what we were doing is we were involving you know, normal Melburnians and sort of curatorial activity and sort of giving them a voice. And um, they're not really used to working that way there. It's all like the interpretation of art and art itself and how it gets there, the gremlins do it. You know how it is. How does it get here? There's a museum wall text as if some omniscient, powerful force wrote it. It doesn't happen before your eyes. Your eyes. It happens all behind the scenes. So if you give people the power to make it happen on their own terms in a museum situation, i.e. people selecting artwork, writing their own label texts, and being involved in the running of an exhibition, this is kind of mind-blowing for large-scale institutions. So, so who did you let do that? Anything from an all-female Muslim art collective to one of the um, intellectually disabled artist studio programs that we worked with to an Aboriginal elder. Gosh, who else? The Percy Granger Museum, which is an amazing museum devoted to Percy Granger, Australia's most highly respected composer, and also um, a masochist and designed his own tea towel clothing. Really interesting guy. It's pretty amazing. And what happened is that the institution wound up being very supportive of it because they never worked in this capacity before and they were kind of thrilled. And, um, you know, they wound up giving us a lot of resources. So, yeah, it was this nice sort of exchange between the National Gallery of Victoria and the greater Melbourne community in such a way that probably had never, I mean, definitely in my understanding of the institution, had not really happened before. And in fact, I don't know many encyclopedic art museums who have done an exhibition of this scale and this type within their institution before. It's something you might see more in a smaller university art museum or a community art center. Um, not so much at a large institution like the Met, like the National Gallery of Victoria, like the PMA here in Philly. I'm not saying they wouldn't do it, but it's normally not part of what they do. And did that show reach beyond the people who participated, or, or was it really pretty much, oh, look at us and look what we're doing? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, hopefully it did. You know, the thing that we didn't do, we didn't do um, kind of exit interviews, focus groups with audiences, which is what museums always fail to do, and we failed in that way, too. So can, can we talk a little bit about social practice in Melbourne? I mean, you're presenting this as really radical for the museum. I think it's radical for the museum, but Melbourne is a pretty, um, how could we say this? It's got its fingers on the pulse and switched on in terms of what's going on in contemporary art. And um, there's artists who are internationally recognized, um, contemporary artists from Melbourne practicing today. Um, and there's a lot of activity in artist-run spaces. There's a lot of artist-run initiatives in Melbourne, and they're interested in social engagement, social practice type art making. And um, in fact, there's been some exchange with Philadelphia and Melbourne already, which I didn't even know about until I sort of got there. Um, Basecamp invited one of the big Melbourne collectives called DAMP to Philadelphia. Basecamp here in Philadelphia, um, which was run by Scott Rigby. I'm not even sure if Base Camp is still up and running. Maybe around 2004 or five, they invited, maybe even later than that, they invited collectives throughout the world. I think they might have got a Pew Grant or something to that effect. And one of the collectives that wound up coming to Philadelphia was DAMP, D-A-M-P, and they're quite well-known in Melbourne. And so there's, there's a lot of interest in these kind of practices in Australia and in Melbourne in particular. So it's a pretty sophisticated art scene. 
Did you get to see, um, did you get to travel to China? You're over yeah. in that part of the world? Yeah, I took a really nice, um, very long journey. It lasted almost a month. I, and I went to um, several of the Biennales or Triennales that were on back in 2008. So I went to the Yokohama Triennale outside of Tokyo and Yokohama. I went to Beijing. I had a really good friend who was living over there who kind of showed me his vision of what the Chinese contemporary art scene. I got a lot of different angles as to what that Chinese contemporary art world or scene is about in Beijing. I got both more official versions and more unofficial versions, which was good. And I went to Shanghai too, and there was a Biennale or Trinale going on there as well. And then I went to Singapore in that same junket. These are parts of the world that Americans have very little understanding of. I mean, Indonesia has a thriving contemporary art scene. In fact, the last thing that was on the books that I was to do at the National Gallery of Victoria was a two-person exhibition with um, two artists who I met at the Yokohama Triennale. Fortunately, I can't be there working on it, but um, it will happen. So really amazing part of the world. And you know, the way America looks to um, Mexico or Latin America because they're our neighbor for our sort of cultural exchange um, Australia looks at the Asia-Pacific world, and um, that's just the nature of geography, I suppose. So you really got um, a, you know, a certain perspective that was entirely new to my experience in America by living in Australia. And, and where is the center of the art world from the Australian point of view? Well, from the Australian point of view, or the Melbourneian point of view, it's Melbourne. There's a Melbourne-Sydney <laughs> Melbourne rivalry. Um, Sydney is more of the kind of financial glamour capital and Melbourne is more of the arts culture capital but me being an outsider I thought they were both really amazing cities. Melbourne probably has um, more of those artist run spaces it's more of a young artist kind of burgeoning place. I mean Sydney has the MCA which is a the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney which is fantastic. Um, they have the Art Gallery of New South Wales which is an establishment Encyclopedic Art Museum, which is really an important, you know, destination, and it has other places like Art Space, which is uh, contemporary art, sort of Kunsthalle. So I'm not going to say, you know, Melbourne was the best. I mean, I think they're both really good art cities. Um, but Melbourne has a lot of stuff going on on the ground. It has a lot of festivals. It's it was overwhelming, and there was a lot of stuff going on, and. Um, which, you know, shouldn't be surprising. You know, Australia is a very civilized, you know, society. Why well, wouldn't it have a lot of art stuff going on? But it was hard to keep up. You know? how, how are the arts supported in Australia? Do you know? Is I do. I know, I know a bit about it. Yeah, um, there, there's very little philanthropy in Australia. So it's more governmental money than it is. I mean, way more than it is here. So there's no foundations or very few there's foundations? There's very few foundations. Hmm. It's just a way different model. Than, than how it is here. I mean, things are changing a bit in Australia, like they obviously are everywhere else in the world in terms of economic sustainability of arts, but um, it's definitely governmental for on the larger institutional level, I mean, in terms of operating expenses, but there are wealthy individuals that support um, acquisitions and that kind of thing. Does it, does it work better or worse? I don't know, it's a really good question. I, it's hard for me to say because part of the thing I missed about the way 
things operated, at least for me at my last two jobs, was that the curators could get really involved in the fundraising. You mean here in Philadelphia? Here in Philadelphia. Like, I, I could really steer fundraising at the Academy. I'd have to get permission from, you know, the director, but, you know, if there was some money available that could really be utilized for contemporary programs, you know, I had the ability to go ahead and, and get that money. But in Australia, especially the National Gallery of Victoria, it's such a the division of labor is so refined that I would just wouldn't be involved in fundraising on that level. I was a little bit, but for the most part, you know, it's not my department. It wasn't a curator is not involved really that much in the fundraising. So it's a very different job in some ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is a different job in, in some ways. So you've been here on the job for about a month? For about a month. Do you have the long view yet of what uh, you'd like to do? Or are I you don't. setting that? No, I'm just setting I mean, we're... We're in sort of a situation now where, where there's a lot of things we need to figure out. This building is now has under different ownership, and we're negotiating as to whether we'll stay here or whether we'll go elsewhere. But, you know, I'm planning, you know, exhibition ideas, but it's, it's too early to really get into it. I mean, I like to do something regarding so-called self-taught art today, filtered through a contemporary art lens, and because there's a lot of a interest... Well, I mean, I'm not going to get too much into it, but I've been involved in some of this type of work, self-taught artist work, through some of the um, intellectually or developmentally disabled studio programs in Australia. So that's one area that's very much under the interest of contemporary art curators right now. So what are some of the other areas? I don't know. I'm going to look into that. What, what qualifies or quantifies one as a self-taught artist in 2012? I don't know. Maybe this is going to be one of those shows where it's going to, um, if it happens, is going to leave a lot of questions unanswered. But let's put it on the table. What, what does all this stuff mean? And how do we go about in 2012 defining what self-taught or so-called outsider art is? And can we even define it? Or is it, will it always be open to question and investigation? So there's just a lot of interest, I think, right now within contemporary art regarding the so-called self-taught art, outsider art field. And I'd like to do something that explores the different ways in which we investigate what the, that area of self-taught outsider art is. Well, on that note, we're going to say thank you and oh, welcome back. My pleasure. Back. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. You've been talking with Alex Baker, and thank you, Alex. Thank you. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.